0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going.
1: Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, you know, for some it's sex, drugs and rock and roll. But for me it's wine, food and a good book. They are all in Kirsty Manning's debut novel, The Midsummer Garden. Welcome, Kirsty. And thank you for giving me such a great read.
0: Oh, thank you. Oh. Happy to be here.
1: <laughs> Sometimes research takes us to incredible places, and I can tell in Midsummer Garden it's taken you to interesting places too Tasmania and Tuscany wine-growing areas and the gastronomy of San Sebastian in Spain. But this book is not a travel guide, is it?
0: No, no it's not.
1: (laughs) It's a well-crafted story set in different times.
0: Well, let's start with Pip. Where's she? Where and when? In She's uh, Pip? Is the book opens in 2014 and Pip has just moved into a rundown ramshackle cottage on her uh, fiance's property in Tasmania. It's a waterfront property, it's a vineyard that they've set up. Um, it kind of rolls down into the Don Catastro Channel just south of Hobart. And she is um, she's, she's about to begin her new, I guess, next stage of her life. She's really
1: Philip but Pip by nickname, but Pippi by nature. I don't think I'll ever look at mudflats again without feeling reverence for what goes on underneath them. Now, Kirsty Manning, I know that you're foraged for pippies. How do you do it?
0: You actually... Um so my husband I should add is Tasmanian. So we we spend quite a bit of time on the coastline in Tasmania. So and it's just what they do. Tasmanians seem to spend a lot of time on and about the water and seafood and seafaring is a way of life for them and um so you go down to the mud flat and mm-hmm. you actually um dig your hands in, in. the into the <laughs> gritty kind of silt really it's a mixture of mud and sand up to the elbow and you scoop out a handful of sand and you kind of spread the sand on the on top of the the corrugations of the the sand i guess it is and then pick up the pippies and throw them in a bucket <laughs> And then take them away
1: and cook And then them. take
0: them away and cook them on the barbecue.
1: Well, this surprised me because I've heard about in invasive species of oysters. You know, you get the uh, Pacific oysters and things. But I didn't realise we had invasive species of clams and mollusks. mollusks yes. Yeah. Well,
0: um, in writing this book, I spoke to uh, quite a number of PhD students. Students and people with doctorates in marine biology and ask them about... um, Because it is a book about finding balance and I think um, you don't realise, but the mudflats are very... I guess it is an area that moderates our environment, the water, it keeps it clean. And mollusks, their nature is that they clean and filter our water Mm. and clean and filter... Why is all of this relevant to Pip? Because she spends her life studying balance and trying to find the perfect, um, I guess, equilibrium for the environment. And she's very passionate. She wants to save her stretch of shoreline um, with the introduction of international shipping, has come mm. and creatures that's- from far away, but she completely has failed to miss that she has uh, no balance in her own life. She's so. doing
1: a PhD, and she wants to finish it. She wants, she wants to, to finish make her it. father proud. Now you talk about a balance because she also balances her cooking with all the natural for herbs that she picks along up on the way, and she's a very, very good cook too. And uh, she she works part time in uh, a restaurant in um, down in Hobart too. Yes, but, she's a true student. Oh, she's a <laughs> she struggling to be, student. She, she has seems, to earn
0: some money. She seems
1: to be so good at everything and she sort of seems at odds with this perfect world.
0: You know, What's her dilemma? Well, her dilemma is, I think it's a pretty um, standard dilemma for contemporary women. I mean, she is comprised of lots of different elements. I wouldn't say she's great at a lot of things, but she enjoys a lot of things. And But her dilemma is... Um, she really wants to finish her PhD, but, and I actually spoke to the doctorates, the doctors about this. And, um, when you are doing a PhD, it's quite, quite difficult. It's quite grueling at the end, especially if you go from a love of the outdoors to data crunching Mm. for months on end. And, um, and I asked them what, what would it take to walk away from a PhD? Because it's after years of study, why would you walk away from a PhD? And they said, um, funding cuts and changes to policy and a breakup in a relationship so I thought they're all going in the book they're all (laughs) going in the book so Pip is at a real crossroads in her life what she really wants to do is finish this PhD Mm. and her life is just running off the rails and she doesn't know she's young and like many of us when we're young we can be really focused in one direction but also I wanted Pip is a very fierce character And she's full of contradictions and she makes mistakes and she fails and she picks herself up again and she goes off wandering and that's like so many, that's the dilemma for contemporary women.
1: Well, she's made a promise. She's made a promise that she's going to marry Jack and because of that her parents give her an engagement present. Actually, let's hear a little bit because it's a big pot. This is from page 13.
0: So this is when she's um, unpacking her engagement present in her kitchen, which is some old heirloom pots from France. From under the lid came the scent of stale, musty copper, but also the faintest trace of wood. Inside the dark pot rested a scroll of paper about the length of her hand tied with a piece of brown string. Reaching in, she gingerly lifted up the mysterious parcel. Sweet-smelling, faded red-pink rose petals and a mummified piece of what looked a bit like wormwood, Artemisia, dropped out. It had obviously been pressed flat when it was still lush, but how long ago? Now the feathery fronds had lost their chlorophyll pigments, hardened and turned silver, like the delicate antique French lace she'd been eyeing off for her wedding dress.
1: Okay, so this present and what she finds in it links us to the other half of the book, and it's Artemisia. Artemisia is a character. Now, where and when is she?
0: Well, Artemisia is, uh, she's a cook and a herbalist of a chateau in um, Chaloux in 1487. 1487, so 500 years earlier. So take yourself back to medieval times.
1: Now this uh, Artemisia, she's educated. Now who educated her? Because she was an orphan.
0: She was an orphan, but um, she was taken in by the chateau and the the abbot at the time of the chateau uh, educated her. She was taken in by the cook and the abbot, and the abbot taught her to read and write, and the cook taught her herb law. Now, an abbot, so there's
1: all of these monks around tending the gardens, you know, picking things and helping helping her to... Get the, the the herbs to make the meals because it's a big lot of people she has to feed. Big operation, <laughs> big operation, <laughs> big
0: operation. Lots of hands.
1: But the lovely abbot that she uh, that taught her so much died, and now we have Abbot Roald. Oh, he's a nasty piece of work.
0: He is. I really wanted to. Um Compare and contrast I, I'm not an overly religious person, but I know people who are and I wanted to get through that concept of um, you know that place of religion that comes from love and hope and divinity and all of those elements he talks about the rose, the symbolism in the church and um, and that really feeds Artemisia and gives her a life really she doesn't she doesn't have much of a life outside the walls of the, ch- the chateau and then the new abbot comes in and he he takes a very literal interpretation of um the church and you remember at, in medieval times the church was all the, power all power mm. i mean they ruled everything so and he had a very he was a very Power-hungry abbot, and he—he
1: he certainly didn't like
0: her, did he? No, he did not, and he didn't like her because um, she was given exceptions, mm, didn't have to, to go to vespers, yes, and from also Madden's. was given
1: equal uh, look at the books. Because she had to order things, and she knew things were missing. So like yes, it was her job wine. to keep the numbers you know, it, of the chateau. And he, whenever he appeared, it was oh scary and He's slightly you
0: know, menacing. Oh,
1: menacing! What he did to Hildegard!
0: That. Oh, that was
1: horrible. Anyway, that what <laughs> we're moving on now. Into this uh, very busy place comes Andreas. Now, he comes with a cart and a horse, but he's not your usual travelling salesman, is he? No, he is not. (sighs) No.
0: What does he say? Very (laughs) dreamy. He's a spice merchant. His um, origins are from Italy and um, he is called back to the area because his father has died and his father is the head of the guild. And Andreas comes back to the region because it's his job to deliver the spices
1: and take over the guild.
0: Well, their romance builds with the activity and the
1: expectation of Saint Luke's Day in midsummer. What's happening in the chute-
0: in the chateau on Saint Luke's Day? Uh, well, because it was a very religious era, there is a wedding. It oh. is a it is um, it is a wedding set. in... On a midsummer eve in a medieval garden. So, and it is the most auspicious day. It is the day of fertility and love and new beginnings. And so it is a book promising hope and. It is a book about love.
1: Well, what I loved was the amount of research you did on medieval feasts and everything because it just became so alive for me reading it. You know, it was such a busy, busy chateau with everything arriving that day. There was the Oya bringing roasted geese, the boulanger, the bread rolls, the ubelua pancakes for the soup and of course andreas was being bringing pots of sugar and salt and rose water laced with nutmeg cinnamon and myrrh now what was that rose water water going to be used for
0: um it's used for a couple of things but they use it to wash their hands bathe their hands in feasting because remember in medieval times they they on the way into the chateau they um they they wash their hands, they clean themselves because they're going to be shoveling food into their mouth with their hands. So, And the research took me in interesting places because you don't want to feel heavy-handed when you write historical fiction, but you really need to kind of drop someone vertically in a medieval world. And, and because there's a contemporary to the medieval, you have to create that sense that they're there. So you have to have the smell and what they touched and what they felt and... And, uh, Look,
1: we're running out short of time, and there's so much in this book. It is the tip of the iceberg that we're talking about because we're not going into all the relationships and everything. But there's also the cooking um, in San Sebastian. It's sort of, um, Pip becomes a chef in a. Um, m- uh, what sort of? Degust- I guess the molecular
0: gastronomy. Me- me- yeah, molecular. One of the fancy ones in.
1: Um- and she sort of talks about that type of cooking, the closest to alchemy she's ever come.
0: Yes.
1: <laughs> well, look. The, the climax brings both of these women to their entremet. What's the entremet?
0: Well, the entremol. Uh, in medieval times It's the pinnacle of any feast Any banquet in that time And what they brought to the table Were these surprise dishes So they would be as simple as fruit With um, glossy fruit that had pate mm. underneath Or pies that were loaded with birds And rabbits and doves That kind of burst forth Out of the pastry <laughs> in the ceiling And she creates a very special one She for does For our wedding
1: and there's so much here about gardens. You take us through gardens. We walk, we smell, we see. Kirsty Manning, it's just a beautiful book. Oh, thank you very much. Two women who share a love of herbs, but at different places and different times. Both follow their hearts, but to different outcomes. Oh, look, this was just a delight, an absolute delight to read. And as I said, we just did the tip of the iceberg. So I've been speaking with Kirsty Manning about her book, The Midsummer Garden,
2: published by Alan and Unwin. Thank you, Kirsty. It sounds like a feast for the senses. Oh,
1: it was. And there was wine.
2: And wine. Ah, (laughs) an epicurean delight. Well, I have an interview with Peter Polites from Sydney, so here we go. Sydney, homosexuality, addiction, brutality, infidelity. Peter Polites' novel, Down the Hume, is a confronting look at a particular urban culture. So, Peter, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. Now, it's your style of writing, perhaps, that is the most captivating when you first open this book. It's sharp and edgy. And, for example, everyone called it Sydney Winter, but WTF. Bright cold yellow blue skies. Blinds weren't a barrier to that annoying morning light. The sun woke me early and set the tone. Wrecked, sleepless, never refreshed, but, oh, the syrenax. It took the sheen off the sun and dulled its glare. My eyes had inbuilt polarised lenses. How did you manage to capture this voice?
3: Uh, The voice for me started with a residency, and that residency is my home suburb in the western suburbs. Of Sydney? Yeah. And I think kind of just walking around, listening to people speak at petrol stations, at gyms, in the kebab shops. They have a machine gun staccato. And my intention was to try and capture that thought. How essential is that to if you're going to write a genuine novel, the, the voice
2: of the environment?
3: Oh, I think all great literature is rooted in place. Once you understand the grounding of your place, then you can look for what people can relate to and what makes us human. I want to come back
2: to that notion of place because uh, the title of the book is Down the Hume and the chapters are all streets in and around Sydney but I'll come back to that later, because I'm just wondering if there's a disconnect, perhaps me being a Melbourne boy, identifying with that place. But what we have is a character called Bucks, who is the central character. And names play an interesting part in this uh, novel. How did Bucks get his name?
3: In Greek culture, there is a like Australian culture, there is a history of nicknameification. But in Greek culture, it happens with the last syllables of the names. So Bucks' real name is Lambraki, Lambros, a very common name in Greek culture. And Lambraki became Bucky, which became Bucks. But this is the interesting thing. We don't actually get that explanation
2: of his name until well into the novel. And all the other names, Nice Arms Pete, Trainer Bob, The Doc, they're almost without... I won't say without personality. There is personality behind them, but they're not named.
3: They're not named. And I have conceptualised different characters with names. So Nice Aunt Pete is Peter Smith. And the doc has his name of Gil Martin. And the names for me, because a lot of the characters represent metaphorical allegories to certain ideas within the Australian landscape. That's why they haven't got concrete names and names that disappear and are uh, drowned within their own ideas.
2: But it means then that their personalities are concepts in some ways rather than, I won't say real people, they are real, but without a name there's a, a sort of disassociation.
3: There is. Uh, yeah, I agree with that.
2: Bucks is also Greek. Yeah. <laughs> that causes a few
3: problems. A, a tiny bit, maybe. <laughs>
2: well, yeah. Bucks is homosexual. Yeah. And the tiny problem it causes in the Greek community, perhaps being Greek, Peter, you can explain uh, what the significance of this is.
3: I think there's a really strong history of homosexuality within Greek culture, you know, and I think what's interesting for me is Bucks doesn't have a relationship with his father.
2: Well, he's been disowned by his father.
3: But But it hasn't been... But maybe it's not because of the homosexuality. Ah. Because his mother accepts his homosexuality without any problem.
2: But she sort of avoids, well, the mother and the son get together, but they do it when the father's not around.
3: Yeah. So there's a complex relationship at play. I've tried to construct Buck's and his homosexuality just existing in the Western suburbs. But my experience of a lot of young queer people now, especially Greek, more maybe some of the more established communities, is that there is a conflict there at the initial stages. But then, essentially, it gets accepted and normalised, which is what I've seen in a lot of my queer support group as well.
2: What you've got here, however, is a transported Greek culture, which is also common to Melbourne as well, where the older parents have come out and have retained their identity, their Greek identity. In fact, I've got a Greek neighbour... And his mother still has very limited English, but they hold on to the old ways.
3: I do love them for that, Um, and I think that's beautiful. I love the fact that we live in a country where you can work in a factory for 50 years, never learn to speak English, but you can still buy a house and you can have a home and you can set down roots and still be Australian. That is wonderful. But what I'm seeing now, which is contrasting from the frozen Greek diaspora of yesteryear, is all the crisis Greeks coming in. And I wouldn't even say they're Greek. I would say they're actually European.
2: Yes, they've transformed, whereas the diaspora has held on to the old ways, and it's only when you go back that you see the change that has occurred in the home country. But there's, in some ways, a parallel between this transported Greek culture and the homosexual culture. There's a lot of dysfunction in both, it seems. Will I be correct?
3: Yeah, there is. I think the interpretation of cultures or any subgroups or any specific parochial understanding of a tribe... It kind of breeds dysfunction but it also breeds beauty and tenderness and intimacy in a way that nothing else can.
2: I mean marriages are dysfunctional and in the traditional Greek situation some of which have been arranged marriages and things like that the relationships in the homosexual culture that you've got in this book also seem to be dysfunctional as well so that's, that's the sort of parallel that I
3: saw. That's, what, that's really what equality is about, all of us being dysfunctional together.
2: But that, that sort of lens of rather, would you say, pessimistic view to the storytelling?
3: Of course, but that's the intention of the book is that it's a noir book and uh, noir books are intentionally pessimistic right. and they're lose-lose situations.
2: The loss that is occurring, um, there's an all-pervading dysfunction in Bucks' life. He's an addict. Yeah. He's in an abusive relationship. There's infidelity abounding. So there doesn't seem to be the possibility of getting any stability.
3: No, there isn't. Bucks can't make good choices. My character. Mm. He has a very limited framework, and he has a very limited framework of what he thinks love is. Sometimes when you're in a bad position, you think love is violence. And that's what my character is interpreting.
2: Well, he's in a very violent relationship with Nice Arms Pete. I mean, domestic violence, it'd it'd be classified as domestic violence, basically.
3: Yeah, it is. Well, I classify domestic violence quite loosely in terms of physical abuse and psychological abuse. And Hmm. I think that's the coercive control elements of domestic violence are just as damaging as the physical violence.
2: But then there's one particular scene, and it's a sex scene that you've written, and it's described in detail... Uh, he's giving Fellatio to a doctor, but the ultimate intent is to steal the doctor's pass so that Bucks can obtain drugs. So here's sex, which is supposedly enjoyable or mutual, uh a shared uh experience, but the intention is somewhat other.
3: Yeah. I think the thing about sex a lot of the time is that sex is seen as... Sex can be a beautiful thing and sex can be a violent thing and sex can be a violent and beautiful thing. Um, and I guess I, the sex in this book is not nice sex. Mm. It's not enjoyable sex. It's not a novel you'll read because you. it's not an erotic novel at all. I think Eros has really left these characters. Yes, there
2: isn't that. A sense of joy or fulfillment or being uplifted. There's always some other intent. Uh, there's deception going on behind it. All of these sorts of things. I'm wondering then, how much can we say that this is an image of the homosexual culture? What There's a danger in saying that.
3: There I is think. a danger. Yes. There is. And I think I do see this as a classic noir, mm. you know, and I think this has all the elements of a noir trope. You know, sex that's violent, sex that's duplicitous, relationships that go nowhere and a lose-lose outcome. And I, what I've seen in the community, in my community, is uh, there are a lot of functioning, healthy relationships, yeah. people raising beautiful, smart children. And uh, I see this book as about the bad homosexual. Mm. And I think there's an element of assimilation that's going on with the gay community as well. And I want to say that there are other people out there that are having difficulties assimilating Mm. to that.
2: Well, I mean, it can be transposed to the heterosexual community, the duplicity and and such like is still an integral part of that community. And as I said before, the parallel with the Greek community and the tradition which created dysfunction as well. Um, So it's, it's there and it abounds. Now, getting back to where one of the earlier questions, which was about location, each chapter is a particular street. And this is where, actually, the novel ends. The last paragraph. Those streets are a map to how I ended up here. Follow them on my wall. Put your finger on the place where I got bashed, effed, addicted and became a dickhead. The Hume is just another one of those arterials. That's all. The significance of the street names and such like...
3: The Hume Highway is uh, arterial. It goes from the city all the way down into the western suburbs. And it's a saying. People will say, let's go down the Hume. It also references the western suburbs of Sydney, which are incredibly culturally diverse. And it also represents an interior descent into the person's uh, unbecoming.
2: I was just wondering how much someone like me, would be able to identify with that, not knowing much about Sydney, really.
3: No, not much at all. But, yeah. you know, I, one of the other theories, and I called it Down the Hume, is because a lot of noirs use place names specifically. So Mulholland Drive, Sunset Boulevard, mm. they're all uh, our places. And in Sydney, the Hume is just as iconic. And they have particular
2: issues associated with them that just resonate every time they're mentioned. Would all of these street names resonate in the same no. way? Not, uh,
3: Not to everyone. Those are, I, are my street names. They, they're the areas that I live in, and I wanted to queer them.
2: You wanted to queer them. But would the homosexual community in Sydney identify with them, do you think? Or the no? streets? The street, no. Not really. No, no. So Maybe
3: Oxford Street. That's a big one, but that's mm. one of the things set in the city. Also, the more we get into the city, the more obfuscated the names of the chapters get. Right. So there's a chapter called Rushcutters Bay, Southwest Corridor, you know, and they become blurrier and blurrier.
2: Well, Peter, it's been an interesting discussion. A fascinating insight into, as you say, a darker side of the homosexual culture. Uh, there's dysfunction, uh, duplicity, deception, a dark, well, dark noir, that's a bit of a a tautology. But the book is called Down the Hume. We've got drug addiction and all sorts of things. The author is Peter Polites, a Greek writer or a, of Greek descent, which seems to come out a lot. And the publisher is Hache Australia. So, Peter, thank you very much for coming in today. Thank
3: you so much for having me, David.